Good evening, y'all. So tonight, I have the honor of talking to a good friend from uh, the gym I go to, Coma Active. Um, he is a retired colonel in the U.S. Air Force, and so please welcome Mr. Tim Strother. Hey, Julian. Tim. Good to be with you and your audience tonight. <laughs> My audience. The whole 50 people. But I think it's a good start. I'm excited. I really have enjoyed what you've done with Lee and JR. It's just been really fun to listen to them. I'm, I'm excited because... Um, it is a project that there are people I've done the podcast with Lee I did right. the podcast with JR and I've gotten feedback from people telling me like hey I liked what Lee talked about hey I liked what JR talked about right. like real life things and it's cool that I'm able to I don't think enough people I think I mentioned this in JR's not enough people get to have these like long conversations to learn right. about who we are you know right. a lot of it's surface level Exactly. It's top. You know, it's just a headline approach, and we're just all running around, and it's a thirty-second hey man, and you, yes, and it's these are these are fun. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm able to do this. Yeah. Um, but no, going off of what you were saying about the headline thing, I think it's interesting how it seems as though, although more information and content is now available, and the access is easier than we've ever had. I think people are taking much less time to analyze the information that they're, um, what is the word I'm like taking in. Right. So they're taking in a lot of information, but people aren't analyzing it. I think that's the reason why we have so many people who are like judgmental, people who have opinions about things without necessarily knowing what certain things are about. Like our phones have gotten smarter and we've gotten less smart about each other. Yes. Because our phones are throwing out content continuously bringing us content not giving us the opportunity to analyze what we're seeing right but um so say that again i agree with you yeah so i want to start off with where i want to know well the air force is going to be a big thing um i would love to learn about you know what you saw where you've been but for starters where were you born and where did you go from there? We'll start. So, the the for me, uh, born in Illinois, uh, okay. kind of a Midwestern background of my for my parents. Um, my parents it were both my well, my father was from Ohio, my mother was from Michigan, and they met in college in North Carolina. But um, we end up uh, beaming around the Midwest for a little bit. Then my dad followed his dream, and became a pilot for Northwest Airlines huh. um, at age. 29 with two small children he they, the, they cashed in the life insurance policy they had to go get uh, flying lessons and eventually got hired by Northwest Airlines in 1966 which how we moved to Minnesota so two years in Hastings Minnesota um, mm. when I was in first and no it's not uh, Hastings Minnesota for uh, f- five years and then two years in a uh, small suburb of Minneapolis and then after experience now, you know, seven years of Minnesota winters, which are pretty heroic, um, my mother along the way developed her career with Kawasaki Motors in the accessories division, moved this place in Orange County, California. So uh, we moved uh. to Mission Viejo, California um, <clears throat> in, um, uh, in 72. And at the time, South Orange County was still very much cattle country 
and orange groves. Yep. And um, and and that's so for me, great experience as a little guy in Minnesota. Had a chance to deliver the Minneapolis Tribune and and experience that in the winter time. So I've got empathy for what that means to be a newspaper boy and, and that kind of stuff. And then and then out in California, we were we were at a, a I just had my 40th high school reunion, and we we talk amongst my peers and we say we really it was a really great place to grow up at a really great time yep and that was uh that was so i was there from sixth grade until i graduated high school and in seventh grade and eighth grade i mean you take two dollars in your bathing suit and jump on the bus at seven in the morning and come back at 10 o'clock at night and still have a dollar left in your suit because you've been out body surfing and running around the beach and stuff it was really so that was so that was that was california and then in uh, 79 i was uh, fortunate enough to get picked up and attend the Air Force Academy and join the circus, you know, of the Air Force the next 26 years and was all around the world after that. So Midwest and also kind of a California exposure to in a place that really doesn't exist anymore because the, the area we grew up is a lot different. It's not bad, it's just different. In Mission Viejo. In Mission Viejo, yeah. It's, yeah, it's so not the same. my sister, I think my sister went, well, my sister went to Mission Viejo. You said you went to Mission Viejo High School? I did. She went to the same school. Really? Yeah. What year she graduated? Uh, no, she graduated she- in... Well, she graduated, I want to say, either from Valencia High School. Could have been Valencia. Well, but she went, she might have been the first two years at Mission Viejo. Okay. And those, that was like 2000 and, I want to say 2006. Right. 2005, 2006. You know, one of the, it kind of got really um, re-energized after this high school reunion. 40 years later, it was a blast. But um, I was a three-sport athlete there, football, basketball, and volleyball. But my senior year, our football team, we ended up winning the, the Southern California Championship. They've always had a good team. Well, we didn't then. Um, my, it was this, that all started with our team. We, um, mm. if, if we were one and four. Um, we just lost uh, at home to San Clemente 28 to nothing. So now we're one and four. Senior year, going nowhere. Um, coaches were working us real hard. So we were going into games really tired and nicked up. So about six of us seniors went, and we were getting home at nine o'clock at night, and you know, behind in homework and all those other things. Mm-hmm. So about six of us seniors went in and talked to coaches. We said, "Hey, this ain't working. I mean, love it or hate it, this ain't working, and let's change it up." And from that game on, after being one and four, losing twenty to nothing at home to one of our big rivals, San Clemente, we didn't lose another game. Wow! And we didn't, and we didn't win a game by less than like twenty points. We just got on fire, and we didn't have one D one athlete on our, our team. We were just a bunch of average Joes. That got really hot, yep. and we ended up playing Anaheim Stadium for the championship, um, and won and beat a team that had two, three D1 athletes, and we beat them twenty-eight to six. Who is it that y'all beat? El Dorado with high school. Elder, that was our rivals, our rival yeah. school. Yeah, that was about a mile from where I went to school. Right. So the fun. So now you go forty years later. We had a reunion. We had kind of a mini internal reunion of the football team. Mm-hmm. On the Friday nights, so you get you know some guys are not with us, some guys got health issues, but it was, our coaches made it too, and it was so that fun to hang out with a couple of our coaches. We're mid seventies. One coach is still surfing at San Onofre, uh-huh. and I and so I'm going to bring I'm going to wear it to the rave party. But we actually got you know now it's in vogue. You get a high school, get a ring. We didn't that wouldn't that didn't happen back. Then. So I'm going to bring this. It, it's really appropriate <laughs> for the rave party. It's this obnoxious. Uh-huh. <laughs> Circinium, circ- whatever you know, fake stone thing, but uh-huh. um, that was kind of so. That was that was a really kind of a fun revisit when Darwin and I went to that reunion. Right on. Yeah. I was gonna say, I have a better understanding of you 
in a few ways. One, you grew up in a cold weather environment, super cold. I've heard this on other podcasts, other people say it, but it seems like it follows. People who grew up in like super cold weather environments are just built different. Y'all are tougher. <laughs> I don't know. Y'all survive together, you know, like, hey, there's a blizzard coming. We got to... Get out of the blizzard. Yes, get out of the blizzard. Let's, but let's shovel. Yeah. You shoveled snow, grew up shoveling snow. I did that. I mean, it was part of it. I, you know, delivered, I mean, not, you know, wipe wasn't bad, but I mean, I've delivered the Minneapolis Tribune on a Saturday night in 30 below weather. Oh my that's, that's, goodness. That, that's life changing. Because you yeah. just did. I mean, that's not because. Toughness. You just, you just did. Yeah. You know, I got tired of asking my dad for allowance money, so I got some jobs, you know. Right on. Airline pilots aren't really as, for, aren't real easy giving out cash to their kids. That's kind of a joke of the airline business. I was going to say, yeah. so you said Northwest Airlines. Yep. Which so, then has now been, subsequently is, is morphed into, uh, as part of Delta Airlines now. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Was that a big airline at the time? Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the, it, it okay. was one of the majors. Yeah. Very a lot of international nice. flights and stuff, and which allowed my dad to be able to move because he would fly, you know, commute like you can as a pilot, and, and he would he'd fly a lot of international stuff because he was a 747 captain is what he retired as. Wow. You know what's fascinating is, like, there are still 747s in service, and yeah. it seems like a lot of the technology that we have now is still being used. So it makes you kind of wonder what technologies we have now that we're not using that in another 30 years we're going to be using. So, like, that 747... Your dad was flying it, and right. they're still flying it now. Yes, but what they do on a lot of airplanes, so there's different versions. So even like like a Corvette, right? Okay, yeah. You look at a what year are we coming up on? I lost my mind. Twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. It's a Corvette. Okay, with I see the what same you know DNA, but it's significantly different than say a sixty four Corvette in terms ah. of avionics and, and a lot of stuff. Makes same sense. with airplanes. You know, the yeah. exterior might look the same, but the interior portion is. Uh, maybe sniffly different. That's that's how it was in F- flying F-16s. So. so you flew F-16s? Correct. Wow, okay. I definitely want to get to that point. All right. But first, I want to ask you about California. So right. I don't know if people knew, but I w- was born and raised in Orange County. And I was telling you earlier, it's fascinating how without talking to you, I saw you as a Texas gentleman not knowing that you were raised in California. or right. uh, You spent a good amount of your life right. in California. And it just goes to show that all I need to do is talk to people to realize we have a lot more in common than right. I would initially think. So tell me, how was it? The, I mean, have you been, when's the last time you were there? Uh, so I guess September was the reunion. So okay, so this past year. Yeah. And with family, there, I'm back there fairly regularly. I've got three nephews that are going to, you know, that grew up with my, my sister and my brother-in-law, in San, which is San Diego area. Yeah. yeah so. So seeing the population growth, how crazy is that to you? No, it's nuts. I hate it. For me, I've been there. I mean, I was born in 93. So I saw the population growth. But when I was there, it was somewhat already there. Um, but I can't imagine like seeing the orange groves and like... Oh, yeah. I mean, Orange County was... Big properties. Right. We'd ride our bikes 30 miles to go grab a pizza. And we just wow. did. 30 minutes, not 30 miles. 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you said it was where? Mission Viejo? Mission Viejo. And okay. so the only road between, the only way you could get between Mission Viejo and El Toro, which is where the first time I ever saw fighter planes, because El Toro Marine Corps Air Station, yeah. there was only one road and it was 2nd Street. I don't know why I remember that. And, but that was through the orange groves. Well, through the orange groves, yeah. was it like dirt roads? 
No, it was they had pavement. Not okay, okay, not that, not that <laughs> but, long. Yeah, ago. But, but probably not, yes. But so that was so it was a really neat time to be there in a really neat place. I mean, I feel very fortunate I've been there at the time. It's not bad now. It's just it's just crushingly you know more people on, in, in terms of everything. It's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's it's the issue is is there are so many people that it's hard to maintain. The level that you would want that area to be maintained. At. Controlling growth is something to be really learned as we look yeah. at our area. Oh yeah, I've I've seen this before. That's part of my observation. Even here is is getting more popular. That's right. So yeah. you know, in terms of growth and how do you stay in front of growth and 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 maintain the what brought everybody here is a challenge and how and, and it's it's an art and a science how to how to do that. I mean, you all are in a pretty good area here though. I mean, it seems that it's yeah. a little bit of ways away from where. We that first moved here. Yeah. We were. This was the only house in this part of our area. And Darla said, hey, "We're a little far out here." I said, "Baby, they're they're coming." Yeah. <laughs> so, what is this considered? New Braunfels. Our address is New Braunfels, but we're really by. You know, when I when I explain Lake? it to somebody, when I explain it to somebody, I say, "Okay, you know where Smithson Valley High School is?" Yeah. And then that just kind of starts the conversation because we're kind of an intersection between New Braunfels, Spring Branch, Bolverity, Startsville. Gotcha. So if some guy says, "Hey, I'm working New Brom," if you need the guy to come by to, to get something done, you go, "All right, man, we're not really in New Brom." Yeah, so yeah, Plan yeah. your day. So you said you were stationed. You so when you joined the Air Force Academy, right? What did you say about El Tor? Did you ever were you ever stationed there? No, because that's a Marine Corps. Base. I think my dad was there. Yeah, if he was in the Marines, yeah, he was stationed there. So if he had anything to do with aviation, because that's that's they flew fighters out of El Toro. F-4s, My dad was there. A-4s, yeah, he flew the um, or he worked on the F four Phantoms. They were there. That's the first time I ever saw what a military fighter aircraft was. Was wow. Was when I was in high school and going off, and I had no idea. I mean, to me, I I never would have thought I was going to the Air Force Academy. I, that was not what the, the number one plan was, quote unquote. I had, there were other places I was going to go, and then it was just kind of funny how, which has kind of been a theme for me is. One door closes, another door opens up, and that that door that opens up is better than what the original plan would have been. You know, what's interesting is that's similar to my dad's story. So he works in aviation now. He's been in aviation for, let me think, just over 20, probably right around 30 years. Um, Now he works on smaller turbine engines, but like Cessnas, Beechcraft. Um, but he worked on the F4 Phantoms, and then he worked for Pratt and Whitney out of Los Alamitos. See, see. Um, so you know exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's so cool. It's such a small yeah. world. Yeah, Can, but it is. How did you get um, the 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 drive or the interest in joining the Air Force? So how did that come about? I did not have a burning desire to a fly because my dad flew. So I mean, I was there, but I wasn't. I wasn't the guy staring at airplanes in the sky. It just that wasn't me. Um, for me, the motive, so there I am in Southern California. I'd been in the Midwest, a lot of family in the Midwest, Southern California. So I, you know, where I was going to go to school, I knew I didn't want to go to school in Southern California, the Midwest, because I wanted to see something different. So that was one okay. of the thought process of a 17 year old, you know, dude with hair out to his shoulders. So were you a, a California kid? You well, I just didn't cut my hair for the last three years. I was in, I mean, I did. Were you a beach really. kid? No, I was a sports guy, but okay. we'd go to the beach too. I mean, it was I, I was able, I navigated between a lot of different groups. I had okay. the, you know, the now I guess we call it the AP group. Mm-hmm. Of my sports buddies, you know, and you could still play three sports in those days at a, at a large school. It's harder now. Had my you know surf buddies. Had the motocross. We had motocross too. Yep. You know, so I, I was really 
friends with a lot of folks. I mean, I, did, I mean, I didn't just shut off or say, hey, "Sorry, you're yeah. in the wrong group," or "I'm in the wrong group." That's yeah. you know. But my parents went to, on a vacation and they met some people from Colorado Springs, which is where the Air Force Academy is located. Okay. And that was my junior year, sophomore year. And my dad comes back and says, hey, look at this place. You know, my dad was probably excited about no tuition either, too. I mean, it was a positive um, in his mind. But um, so I kind of went and talked to my counselor, Dr. Wallace, who had a gorgeous daughter, Cozanne. <laughs> He was now a missionary in Kenya. Darla hears this. <laughs> Darl, doing okay, but uh, but anyway, but I but any but so anywho, but I went and talked to Doctor Wallace. I go, hey, uh, blah blah blah, me, I'm some dude, and so that started some momentum on. It put some rigor in what I was taking in school and and doing extracurricularly to allow me the opportunity to be able to compete with what it takes to go to an academy or ROTC scholarship. I mean the the the. Um, feeling of service was not far away. We okay. had service in my family. Um, now, my dad it was briefly in the, Air, in the Air Force, but we had certainly the World War II generation and Vietnam, but um, the attitude of being, you know, giving back to your community and, and doing things was, is, is a legacy on, on all sides of my family. So that's in play. Air Force Academy, I'm playing football, I'm, playing, I'm getting softly recruited by a few schools, not by, by West Point. Wow. But not by um, the Air Force, which is interesting, and by some of the Ivy League schools for football, and then some of the West Coast schools for volleyball. But I just didn't wasn't quite going to be at a level I think that was going to allow me to compete for volleyball because I just was starting to I could see some physical your guys were bigger and, and jumping. So anywho, um, kept my hat in the ring. Uh, the number one school I thought I was going to go to was Duke University because that's where my parents went. Mm-hmm. Didn't get accepted. Kind of weird. Uh, had an RTC scholarship. Air Force Academy calls. I was a second-round pickup uh, for the Air Force Academy, so that's where I went and got first time my ears had seen the light of day in a couple of years, and and uh, that's that's how I walked in there in June of 1979. Very nice. What was your initial plan? Uh, my initial thought Volleyball I was going to I was going to go to Duke University on a Navy ROTC scholarship, and become a naval officer through Duke University, and major in whatever people major in at Duke University. So you initially had you had plans on joining the service. Just I did. Not I, the I, I did that. I did. I, I had whatever. Who would ever take me was my best was my was my best uh, best friend. Yeah. And uh, so West Point for football, um, Navy ROTC, because Naval Academy said pound sand. See you later. It's just <laughs> going through the process. Didn't get an Air Force ROTC scholarship, did get accepted at the Air Force Academy. I mean, that's, I talked to some of the kids I talked to, and I go, you never know the process, what's, who's going to give you a yes and no vote, so just keep, just keep pitching until, you know, you get the yes votes. And it all works out. I mean, it all works out. 26 years. Yeah, so uh, four years of the Academy, thought about quitting more than once, uh, threw my life away and stayed in school, and I was able to get a pilot training slot, and, and uh Went to pilot training in uh, Lubbock, Texas at Reese Air Force Base, which is a base that doesn't exist, uh, in 84. So I graduated in 80, 1984 in August. And I got an airplane called a T-33, which was a old fighter. It's an old P-80 fighter, but was used now as a kind of an adversary support with electronic countermeasures and be a bad guy. And, mm-hmm. and I was assigned to uh, Panama City, Florida, which did not suck as, a, it, as huh? a lieutenant. That was a great first assignment had a two-bedroom apartment on the water for $350 a month wow for 300 you know it's interesting (laughs) you being in the Air Force so my dad initially was going to go into computers right um, when he joined the Marine Corps but I guess the they had told him that if you wanted to be in computers 
um, it would have to be a year or so to wait. So they said the next best option is the aviation right. side. So we joined that. But it's interesting. People who get into aviation, a lot of them are in for the long haul. There's people who are like, that my dad always says it, like we don't do it for the money. It, once you get into aviation and you begin to love it, like you're there. There's a passion because, that, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that is, there just is. It, it's, it's a cool thing to be a part of on all sorts of levels. It, it's a tremendous amount of teamwork. It's a hundred miracles to make things go yeah. smoothly, but to make it look like it's not a hundred miracles. Yeah. It's funny too, you're mentioning about having a nice place in Panama City, Florida. My dad, when I was gonna, so out of high school, my initial plan was to join the Air Force. And he was always telling me, like, I was talking to him about whether I wanted to join the Air Force, the Marines. He's like, don't join the Marines. Like, you're going to get treated like crap. You have the brains to join the Air Force. Join the Air Force. Right. And there, and there's the proof right there that the Air Force, you, you got a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> well, <laughs> right I, on the I beach. could have been a Navy guy. The Navy guys are Pensacola doing the same thing. And, mm. and the Marine Corps, frankly, has got the best camaraderie, I think, of any of the, yes. for sure, of the I, services. I can, I can see Marine. that. We've got a national, you know, it's it's a na- it's part of our national fabric is our yeah. Marine Corps. Yeah, for sure. You know. So tell me, so your first stationed in Florida right. as lieutenant, is that because you came out or you came as your first station with a degree? Is that how you are? So to become a pilot in the Air Force, you have to have, uh, you've got to be an officer. Okay. Right. I mean, there's some caveats right now, but I'll just, just in general, you have to be an officer. To be an officer, you have to have gone through a commissioning source. Part of that is to have gone through whether it's the Air Force Academy, ROTC, or officer training school. Okay. So for the Air Force, there's three ways. And then one of the prerequisites of those three programs is to either be in a program that has that allows you to reach your bachelor's degree, yeah. or you already have your bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in the case of officer's training school. So, and then from there, so of my graduating class of 1983 from the Air Force Academy, about 40% of us went to pilot training. Okay. Yeah, so we had nine nine hundred of us lieutenants graduate, and forty of us went to pilot training. And then, the, and then out of that forty percent of my pilot training class, here's back in the mid '80s. Um, so, forty percent of my graduating class who went to pilot training, we had forty percent attrition at my pilot training class. What does that mean? That means that you look left, look right. Forty percent of the class didn't graduate wow. due to various reasons. So now you have that. And then, and then of that 40 per, 60% that's left, about 25% would go into tactical aviation, kind of fighter-oriented aviation. Okay. And I was fortunate enough to do that. I wasn't I wow. the top of my class to get a fighter directly. I got a, an airplane that was fighter-like, the augment, you know, the, the fighter community. And I did that for two years before I get, and it started flying F-16s. So becoming a fighter pilot is extremely selective. Um, it, during that time, it is now, but even then it was very much a salmon run. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a continual um, necking down of the process and and, yeah. and, and selection and, and performance, and, 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 and you want that. I want my, I want the best person. Absolutely. As my heart surgeon, I want the best person. As my eye doctor, I want the best person that's leading combat sorties, you know, doing all the different decision processes that are required to do when, when you got to have hate in your heart. Yeah, yeah. So what was your first um, assignment when you went to Pensacola? What was, like, your... Your well, job. So, well, I was at Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City. Okay. And, and um, uh, my, your, it, it's when you're a pilot. Did I say Pensacola? You did, but oh, yeah, okay, but, I got it mixed up. But when you're a pilot, you kind of got two things going. You are you're you're maintaining your pilot skills. Okay. And then you also then have a job in the squadron. It could be you know administratively working paperwork. It might be in charge of some other folks. It might be in charge of some equipment. 
I mean, there's terms like in charge of training or scheduling or quality control, which is called standard evaluation, um, and or the weapons and tactics shop. So I always always tend to be more towards the weapons and tactics side, you know, okay. which is. I think normally what most lieutenants kind of wanted to lean towards, and I was fortunate to get that opportunity both in T-33s and then in F-16s. Wow. And so a lot of it in Florida, was that just training time? Because obviously you're not overseas. Right. So the, the T-33, I would go as a lieutenant, we would fly to different bases around the country, and we would be the adversary to train against F-15s, F-16s, oh. F-4s, F-106s at the time, the, the fighters... So you got a lot of experience as a really young person. In fact, that paradigm really accelerated my experience because I was in it for two years. Okay. And when I got an F-16, I was more experienced than otherwise would have been if I would have gone direct to an F-16 unit because I was exposed to so many things I see. so much sooner. Yeah. So you would fly from that base in Florida to other bases you to would. do training with other... To fly against them, I would have electronic uh, uh, equipment on my aircraft to jam their radar, so they have to deal with that. Whoa! I would interesting. We, we would present. We'd come in, for, in formations and present formations that would simulate at the time Soviet Union formations, and we would drop all sorts of different countermeasures out. There's chaff, you know, metal, little pieces of metal in the air, and, and flares that that you know all those frontline units that were defending the continental United States. Um, would need to see in, in you know in, in real live airspace, and we would do things like uh, you know go at two o'clock in the morning, 100 200 miles off the east coast at 500 feet. Made sense at the time, uh-huh. and then we turn around and see if anybody would find us coming in. You know, we wouldn't be identified, and, and that was a little spooky. Wow, that is that's spook- why lieutenants would do that. Captains and majors wouldn't do that. That's why they'd send the young guys out to do that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. That's super cool. I I never. That is not something that I would initially think of as having other pilots against our own pilots to train them, in a sense. That is Run what makes our Air Force better than any other Air Force in the world, is we spend a lot of investment to this, to this day on the adversary aspect. You have to do that. You have to, yeah. you have to hone your skills. And what's changed today, just to jump significantly forward, you know, 40, 35 years, the simulation aspects are so much better now that you can, in, in the virtual world and in, in, in artificial intelligence, you can simulate a lot of things that we used to do in the air as an adversary. Mm. Um, now there's an aspect, not all of it, but there's an aspect of that that happens more of in a simulated environment. We're not in a holograph yet, mm-hmm. or the holodeck yet, yep. but um, it's starting to kind of go in that general direction. So you can really t- um, uh, stress our individual and our processes and you can do it multiple times yes if we're not there yet but that's the direction we're going so now as a person who has seen the transition from close to 30 years ago Mm -hmm. when you were in it was in the late 80s so i so graduated from the academy 83 okay and i retired from the air force in 2009 okay so So you saw that 26 years so you saw that 26 year transition was there ever a thought that the artificial intelligence, the virtual world would be the way we trained? Or like back then, did you ever, was it ever in conversation that there's gonna be a day where we're training through simulated virtual reality? Right. There's always been an appetite, especially in the Air Force, to go in that direction because a lot of what we do needs that. Um, there's still some impediments to a while and happen and, and you still need to you need to be in the actual environment that's part of the challenge yes. where's the balance yes between actually flying 
and all the other variables you can't put in a simulated environment just that so there's a there's a balance where's the hybrid part of it and 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 our air force right now is very much looking at that um i was very fortunate to be in our air force at a time where we had a lot of money we we upgraded all of our equipment and we flew a lot and i got exp i really really had fun i'm not saying folks now are having fun but we really had fun i mean it, it was a lot of flying a lot of heavy flying um with relatively new equipment that I mean the F-16 I took to war in desert for Desert Storm in uh, January of 1991 had 50 hours on it. Brand new. It smelled like a new car. Wow. So um, this is more of a harder question to ask, but um, because you did pilot on pilot training, were there ever any accidents that you had seen or that you had heard of doing that training when you would oh, do yeah. that? A lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot. I don't, you know, um, one's a lot. Um, yeah, definitely. But um, it's a dangerous game. I would say driving on 281 is more dangerous because uh -huh. you don't trust the people around you and they're not trained and they're not um, professional and in, in most cases less than competent. Um, and that's not the case with whoever flew with. It was, but it's a dangerous game. And sometimes there are accidents which occur and sometimes there's fatalities that are just part of it. So where's the risk? How hard do you train? You know, it's kind of like we do in CrossFit. I mean, how hard do you train to run risk hurting your shoulder or your knees? Mm -hmm. Or where do you bring it back a little bit? And sometimes it's hard. You have to know, but there's a lot more variables when you have aircraft and weather and, and, and all that goes into it to know where it's going to be. If you have a training loss that's obviously you know you've gone too far and it's a tragedy yeah but if you don't train intensely then you might not be in a position to um, be able to defeat an adversary when you really need to yeah that is true so now the first was the first time in active or not active but your first time seeing quote-unquote war was desert storm yeah trained hard up to desert we flew a lot in the um, late 80s and uh, we launched for Desert Storm, our squadron, out of Moody, uh, Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. Okay. We flew on F-16s. It was a version called the Block 40. There's different subcategories of the F-16. So we were, our airplane was optimized, our version of the F-16 was optimized to fly at night. So we had this new thing called infrared, you know, mm -hmm. and this is all kind of new. We didn't have night vision goggles yet, just infrared on some of our stuff. It was pretty rudimentary, frankly. We launched 24 aircraft, F-16s, out of uh, Aldous, Georgia in January of 91. Uh, left Darla with a two-and-a-half-year-old, and she was pregnant with Natalie in January. When you left? When I left. How long was that mission? Well, so the flight from Valdosta, so we flew um, to Marone, Spain, okay. on the southern part of Spain. and We stopped there and to refuel, not just to refuel, just to kind of okay get out of the jets for a little bit because that's a long flight. That was about 10 hours. In January, and then um, and then we then we landed at Al Minhad uh, in the in some place called the United Arab Emirates. There, uh -huh. A lot of times, you can, we kind of jokingly say, "Why do Americans go to war?" It's to learn geography because there's a lot of learning new places mm -hmm. around the world, and we that's think in a lot of ways that's still the case. But um, I remember um, sun was rising over uh, Gibraltar um, that morning. I think we took off on the fourth of January, so this is now the fifth of January. And the sun's the sun's starting to come up. We've been flying all night. We, you have air refueling. That's part of how you go in a fighter. So we're with a, a KC-135 tanker, which is a Boeing 707. 
we, we, you go in cells of six. That's the way we go. So there's six F-16s, again, all around 50 hours. Coming back towards us, uh, much higher, was a C-141, an old you know, uh, transport, flying in the 30s, and a C-5 that was flying higher. And they were flying higher because they were running home empty because we were just, the buildup was huge. And I'm just thinking to myself, I said, Saddam Hussein has picked a really, really bad time to pick a fight with us because we were very op- we, we were at the top of our game in terms of our equipment and our training and our resolve. And um, so uh, it's 36 hours since landed in Spain and then landed Al Minhat, and things were happening so fast. When we landed, the cement that we landed on, we taxed airplane, had only been poured 24 hours prior. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and then, um, but now it's this quick drying cement stuff, pretty amazing. And then our squadron building, as we were we were debriefing still in the hangar, a bunch of these double wides were being put in that became our squadron operations. I mean, things were moving that fast in January of 91. And so we were there, and now it's, um, we're there for about a week, and then things kicked off. Uh, gosh, I think it was, I lost my mind on what night one was. So I was a night one mission commander. Um, okay. So um, our squadron launched a 12-ship that night, flight lead. I wasn't a mission commander. I was a flight lead. So I had... Uh, my squadron commander to four ship, and I had eight F-16s under my command, and wow. we we went at, uh, we had targets at three o'clock in the morning in uh, southern Iraq against the Republican Guard, which were the real true believers. Um, they were wow. they were some nasty dudes, and uh, uh, and we went we rolled in on those guys that night, and that was the night when everything started kicking off. Wow! So essentially, you were part of one of the first missions. Mm-hmm. That kicked off. Right. There were there were Apache helicopters went across the line, and, and earlier in the evening, and F-117s were doing their thing around Baghdad. And but yeah, it was uh, it was it was quite a it was quite a show. I would like to apologize. I yeah. I didn't mention this before, but thank you for your service. Thanks, man. It was a good ride. That is amazing. The, so uh, the people just but I want to the families were left home at the tougher job. We absolutely. we went, you know, fully manned. You always you're just moving forward and. And those, you know, families and stuff, they you know, they always had the tougher job. So how long were you overseas for? For that gig, two months. Um, I got sick over there. I had to come back early. I got a really bad bug. Um, a squadron stayed over there total for about six months. But I was there for that gig um, for two months. And were your missions just to attack enemies at certain times? Or yeah. was there other stuff involved? Or was that the main... From no, that was the main. That was the main job because it was the issue was very much in doubt. I mean, you know, there were all sorts. There, if if you, for you, I mean, you know, for me, it's almost like yesterday. But you know, you look at the the books. I mean, there was an assumption. You know, the, the pundits who were always amazing. You know, we're expecting thirty and forty percent losses on our part because they, you know, they, they didn't know how well we were trained or how we were actually going to, you know, solve this thing. And, um, but um, it was a. Uh, you know your different kinds of targets. There's different, not to go in total Air Force doctrine, and the, but there's different types of target and what you go for. But we were, our squadron had a night ops and also a day ops, so it was, it was around the clock. And, and the issue, like I said, nobody really knew. And the idea was to, to keep peppering these guys. So when we finally do got to have guys, you know, you know, Marines and Army and everybody else, when they got to do their thing, it's going to be, you know, something that. Um, folks can achieve with minimum loss of life and, and, yeah. and end up that way. I mean, we when we finally had the ground game go, it was 100 hours. Wow. T- tremendous tactics and tremendous precision and stuff, but went 100 hours, you know. How so long? Go ahead. I the, ground, the ground camp, the ground phase, uh-huh. 
It went for a hundred hours before uh, we reached what our objectives were. Which we were operating. hundred hours. Yeah, for, for the ground aspect. Um, and we That's achieved just our complete a hundred hours straight operation. The ground operations, yeah, absolutely right. Wow. But but it only took a hundred hours. Oh, you're saying it's quick. Right, very quick. Okay. I mean, this the, the perception at the very beginning of this thing it was going to drag on and all sorts of stuff. We didn't, ah. we didn't, we didn't play that game. We played very asymmetrically. Yeah. In 1991. So this war, Desert Storm, went on for how long? Well, so January, and uh, um, I believe uh, we freed Kuwait uh, by April of '91. Mm. And then we, we've now we've been there ever since. You know, for so, various reasons. Help me. I'm I'm not very knowledgeable on what the war on Desert Storm was. What was the initial objective to free Kuwait from Iraq? Because Saddam okay. Hussein invaded Kuwait, ah. and uh, the United Nations said we're not hip to that. Gotcha. Yeah. So did you work alongside other uh, Air Force or? It was very much. It was a coalition effort. So there were what Brit- are the countries? Brit- well, uh, Canadians, Brits, French. Were the ones that I was that I was aware of. There were others too, but I mean, those are the the air assets that I was that I can recall. Wow, yeah. I, I think that's one thing that's super cool that I don't think, I think Germans were there too. I mean, everybody was there, but I mean, those are the ones that jump out at mind: Germans, Brits, yeah, French, um, Italians. The list goes on, but I mean, for the air, if the air forces, those are kind of the main players. That's one thing that's cool. I don't think a lot of people realize, and I didn't realize up until um, I would say I was in my teens was the understanding that we work together with a lot of other nations, um, militaries, um, in cooperation rather than the initial thought of like, oh, we have our own military and all we do is fight other countries. There are a lot of countries that work together. It's all about coalition. In, in, yeah. any, in any endeavor that we're going to be involved with, it's it's about a coalition aspect. And that that's really important. And it's not just a come-as-you-are play on that. And that's really important. I, if, if you and if you're if I'm from Spain and you're from France, mm-hmm. but we train together and we've maybe gone to some schools together, and now when we have to be in combat together, all those relationships and and, and, and procedures and tactics and the language that we speak from a common you know a common perspective are really important. Absolutely. And that's a lot what I'm involved with now, and what I was involved with my later years in the Air Force was international partnerships, which. You know, relationships and people um, take time. Yeah, you know, and and it's sometimes it's hard to measure how effective you are with that. Was there a um, a military or um, are they called so the Canadian Air Force? Are they also called the Air Force, or is there different names for that? For them, the Canadian Air Force, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Was there example. any of those of the other countries that really stood out to you? They're all good. I mean, they've all got they've all they, the 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 to this day the aviators that I deal with from other countries. Their top guys are always very strong. Yeah. What what has the United States Air Force, I think, um, puts in the position we're in is that we got a lot. We're we got a lot, so we're a lot. We tend to resource ourselves pretty well in comparison. Um, well, we put a lot of investment in our enlisted forces, mm-hmm. uh, in our education, in our equipment. I mean, for the long haul, um, and those are all um, there's science and there's art that goes with it. And we probably we do that better than just about anybody else, you know, for the long haul. Uh-huh. The British Air Force, Royal Air Force, you know, um, they hang on to equipment long too, and they're very competent and very sharp. But but so are the so are the the Emiratis, so are the French, so are uh-huh. you know, and the Singaporeans, and you know, I mean, so you know, the Indian Air Force too. It's just how I think how we do the whole enchilada and put it together is what allows us to stand, and how the American taxpayer continues to 
<clears throat> you know, it's a resource. You know, one of the challenges you have, you know, how much is enough? You don't know until you, you lose a war. Yeah. So having a, um, you know, having a top-rate military, but I'll say Air Force, is very expensive. The only thing that's more expensive is having a second-rate Air Force. I see. And it's, it's also that I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it's, it. It's a hard conversation, but it's how much is enough. You don't know until yeah. you... Till it doesn't go your way, and then oh, there should have been more. Yeah, and a lot of it is nobody wants a shooting match. So what what you're really the win is is when an adversary goes, I'm not going to mess with these guys because mm-hmm. they're they're too good. Yeah, and that but how do you know that? You know now you're trying to prove you know prove a negative. Yep. So after oh, you know what I was going to ask you before I ask this question, um, when you guys are flying to other countries, mm-hmm. what is the cruising speed of like an F-16? So. If I'm doing a ocean crossing and you're flying in the mid twenties, you're flying about six miles a minute. What does that mean, mid twenties? Twenty thousand feet. Okay. Twenty thousand feet. So that's a normal place to be because now you get aerodynamics. If you fly higher, the air is thinner. You have less maneuverability. But normally we go on ocean crossings, so something like that. So if you're, so you go in like around twenty five thousand feet, and you're normally going to go about three hundred sixty. Cal uh, airspeed ish. Uh-huh. There's different kinds of airspeeds. Oh, but so not that, not that. I mean, so just to go there, I'm just, I'm just hanging yeah, yeah, out. Yeah. I'm just driving to El Paso. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just going 60 miles an hour. I'm just driving at uh, three, about six miles a minute, which equates to about 360. So a little bit slower than a commercial. What does a commercial airline fly at? So commercial airline, no, a commercial airlines goes at about 0.8 Mach. What's that mean? So they're, if I'm right on that, 0.8 Mach. Yeah, what and is Mach it? is what six hundred. It depends. I'm going to give you a lot of aerodynamics more than you want. <laughs> so all it is because the 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 speed of sound changes what altitude you're at okay, temperature okay. again more than you want to know. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. Whatever but, you want to talk but, about, I but love I'm the just knowledge. Saying that, so an airliner. Now, but an air, the reason we go slow like that, slower, I mean, so an airliner goes about eight miles a minute. So when you're going from here to LA on United Airlines, you're going to fly at about 33,000 feet and you're going about, dip, no wind, because there's always wind, you know, mm-hmm. but if you're going to the west, there's only a wind in your face. But into the air, you're going about seven to eight miles a minute okay. in, in a 737. Mm-hmm. In an F-16 that's just trying to go someplace and just kind of conserving fuel and I've got a, a, a tanker with me, um, you know, air refueler. I'm going a little bit slower than that because you need to keep everybody with you. I got more folks I got to yeah. keep track of. Now, when I'm flying in combat, I'm going a lot faster than that. I'm going up to nine miles a minute. You know, what does that convert to miles per hour? Any well, uh, across the ground, sixty it's, about five about six hundred miles an hour. Six hundred. Yeah. What's that feeling like? Pin pin you to the back of your seat? No, initially? You, you know, because you're kind of in the two. I'll tell you what flying a fighter does. It forces you to compress your thinking and, accel- and accelerate your decision process. Huh. I, I get in this conversation a lot with people about training, right? Okay. Um, what what allows a, a person who's flown fighters, fighter pilot? You know, how do you how do you think? Well, you tend to a accept when you're in, when you're trying to process information. You know. If you go for perfection, you'll never get there. You know, I got to go with the information I have, and then based upon the training and the and the rules that I'm that I'm working under, make a decision and, and move out. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of what drives that process is I'm going at nine miles a minute. Uh, and I've, tra- and I've tra- it's not like the it's not like you're in combat. It's the first time you've trained for this. You've been exposed to this. In fact, many times you you've been stressed harder in peacetime training. Than what you've been exposed to, more other than it's real people trying to, you know, really take you out because they're a little grumpy, you know, uh-huh. um, and vice versa. 
but that that that's the part the the, the time compression to make some to do, go through the decision process is a very important aspect of what we were talking about for you know the simulation the training now yeah so and, and and it's it's kind of you know similar maybe to surgeon you know right now i've got things have got to happen right now so i've got to train an environment that puts those stressors on so when i see a variable uh, coming when someone's about to bleed out I, I can deal with the situation even though that's not what i was expecting necessarily yeah. okay um this is something that i thought about just a few seconds ago but when you're flying you're flying usually around twenty thousand what is a well, that's just when that's I was going someplace. Yeah. That was just a that was just I'm just I'm just hanging out and I'm taking a bunch of folks somewhere else. Can you, if you know how it works, can you explain to me how the jet stream works? So the jet stream is uh, in the northern and southern hemispheres uh, in the in the mid mid latitudes. There is just a phenomenon that in the northern hemisphere it goes from west to east, and the southern hemisphere it goes east to west. It's just um, a. a um, wind a, a atmospheric condition where there's wind that goes at, a, at, a, at a, an increased speed and typically it's most intense around in the 30,000 around 30 35,000 feet uh -huh. and in the winter time it tends to be stronger because it comes a little farther well it, it's more prevalent because <clears throat> it becomes it comes a little farther south just the way it is and if you want to if you're trying to go against it you'd like to stay out of the jet stream if you're um, if you're going from west to east in the northern hemispheres, you'd like to take advantage of that. And how, how fast is the wind going up there? It, well, when, so, okay, it so, so Desert Storm, uh, 1991, it just happened, the jet stream was right over Iraq. So when we were at 25,000 feet trying to deliver munitions, the wind was 120, 120 knots, 120, about 160 miles an hour. Wow. So and you take advantage of that? No, it was totally good. It was not, oh, it was it was, against total, it, was you. it was totally bad. It was it was it was oh. it just it made it a lot tougher um, mm. for for munitions effects and and everything we were trying to do. So you had to work through that. Yeah. Um, but that was just that was just how it, that was just something you had to deal with. What a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah. Just the fact that there's things that we can take advantage of that are already right. up in the air. It's just like, you know, sailors back in the day, you know, yes. I mean, yes. you, you always went kind of the low route going, you know, cuz the the, the currents in the northern hemisphere going a clockwise um, uh, manner, so you took advantage of that. Yeah, to get from Europe to the Americas. It's something that's like you're saying about the sailing thing. It's like we use our natural resources and weather to help us. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of like takes you back to a little primal side of things where you're really taking advantage of what's out there. Could be primal man. Ah, the primal man yeah. project. Yeah. <laughs> So um, after after Kuwait and that whole desert right. storm, I'm assuming you came back to the states. Back to Moody, um, got better. And, Where was Moody? Uh, Valdosta, Georgia. Okay, Georgia. So Natalie was born. Now we have two kids. Okay. And we went from there. I went to a program called Fighter Weapon School, which is the Air Force version of Top Gun. So I went through that program at, La in, at Nellis Air Force Base, which is in Las Vegas. And that's a six-month course. Um, Darla moved with the kids to stay in Kentucky with her sister because it was just, well, through that and, and also in conjunction with my following assignment. So I went from, so we, but it was me for this one. So I went for a course at Nellis, and only 5% of the folks find fighters get to go through this course. And then from there, I went to Kunsan, Korea. So that's Korea. Korea for a year, and that's without your family. That base is called remote assignment, which means there's not any facilities that are um, available to support family. Mm -hmm. Darrell came over to visit, but it's not like you hang out and have you know yeah. neighborhoods and schools and things. 
did that for a year, and then I came back to fighter weapons school to be an instructor. And so we were there in Las Vegas for two years, and uh-huh. and that's where Jonathan went through kindergarten, first grade, and Natalie was behind that. And then we went from that was for, um, ninety-four to ninety-six. Before you go any further, yeah, would you mind telling me about Korea? I would love to know how Korea was. It's how full the up. culture was. Well, um, we've been in a, Korea's interesting place. We were there as a country. We've been there to you know still support the you know the, the ceasefire because the Korean yeah. War has never officially ended, and um, it's always a little different there. The challenge we have is since we rotate people in and out so much, it's we've been at the time I'll say we've been in Korea fifty years at a time. One fifty years, one year at a time. Okay, you know so. Um, about the time you figure everything out, you leave and the next uh, guy it changes. Comes in. Yeah. Now we don't bring everybody in at the same time, but the big rotations in the summer. Okay. And weather is typically pretty crummy because uh, you have monsoons in the summer. It's cold in the winter. Uh, spring and fall are are, are 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 pretty. Culturally, you know, it's one of those places where a lot of people stay in their bubble and don't have a chance to experience the culture mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. On the Air Force side at Kunsan, other places probably more so. But Darla and I, when she came over, we went on a, a program that had a chance for us to experience the Koreans' culture. I made, I, I did the job that I had because I was the weapons officer, which means I was the, the primary tactics and weapons uh, expert, quote unquote, for the 80th Fighter Squadron, Juvats. Um, there, I interacted a lot with the guys that were uh, Korean pilots who were flying F5s and F16s. So I started to go to their restaurants and stuff you yeah. know to go with them and one of the you know big parts of korean food is kimchi yep which is great you like it but i like it a lot but if you're eating kimchi and i'm not i know you're eating kimchi because after oh, about yeah. two days you you smell like you're eating <laughs> kimchi so there's a lot of that so you gotta i i, I went i went pretty native and because i really liked it good I um, like and that. i went to the i went with the, the korean officers to their places which were different than the, the places the americans would frequent and that was pretty cool. That was a great experience to get to to know those guys and, and from a different angle, you know, yeah. down to the next level. So that was kind of that was Korea. Nice, nice. And then so one year tour. Yeah. Say that again. That was it's one, oh, one, it was a year. one year one year tour for. Did you feel like that one year was enough to experience fully what Korea had to offer? No, not no, not not from a cultural aspect. Okay. But I was ready to get home and see my family because yeah. for our family, I mean, from Desert Storm to going to weapons school to going to Korea. I mean that. I mean that's that was a lot of time away from home to really stay focused on the family, and that's yeah. that's an important aspect that you, that often gets missed because the families take a lot of the. You've heard me say this more than once. It's mm-hmm. families, t- especially in a lot of different career fields. But I'll say definitely for someone who's flying fighters, um, there's a lot of support needed from the families because it is not an. It's it's um, it's a team event, and they and have the, the hardest the, job. Typically, yeah, Darrell certainly did. Wow, that was pretty. I yeah, Darrell certainly did. So you came back from Korea, then you went. We went back to Nellis, okay, and Nellis. that was now an instructor at the weapons school, okay, which is a very time-consuming job. It's it's a you've got captains that are getting their PhDs, I mean, figuratively, uh-huh. in the business of being a, a at the time a fighter pilot. The courts, the the schools expanded quite a bit, but as an instructor, you're you're there before the students, you're there after, and it's very very intense program. So that was a. That was a that was a that was a great professional assignment. Very tough on the per, on the family personally. Again, yeah. Was Darla able to live there in Vegas? Yeah, we did. We lived in Vegas, okay. down in South Vegas, which is a tough town to raise kids. Vegas. Yeah. You like going back? No, I hate Vegas. 
How was it compared to it? Well, I like Vegas was okay at the time. I just I'm not a big fan. I don't put money on. I'm not a gambler. I mean, yeah. for me, it just I'm not a good fit for. I, I can't I can't play the Vegas game. Was it too much chaos? Well, you know, the thing of my experience with Las Vegas, if you live there, yeah, and you're not just living the you know jetting in, staying at the Bellagio, doing the thing, and then leaving. That's one way to do Vegas and. I'm a, I'm a crappy gambler. I hate putting money on the table. I just I just don't. That's not so. But we we became friends with a lot of folks. We went to a lot of shows. We went to the restaurants, and that was neat. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can get in trouble pretty fast in Vegas. I mean, uh-huh. and unlike other places, the world trouble will come finding you. You know, uh-huh. and I'm I'm not a big fan of having to always looking over my shoulder. I get it. Yeah. So what? So what is um, after Vegas? Was. So then I had a chance to go to professional school like the Air Force will do. They'll take you out and you'll go to some career broadening. Okay. And so sometimes you get to do um, a school with another service. So I got to go to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, um, which was, for us, our friend, we really needed it. That was a great refresh. It took a year just to get reacquainted. I mean, data point, Natalie was four years old and I was probably gone two years out of four, mm. as one example. And mm-hmm. uh, so... Um, you go to the school and there's academics, you know, and stuff. But it was really a chance, in many ways, to kind of just get re-energized and refresh. And yeah. there's, you know, there's book learning. There's, there's, there's professional augmentation going. It really gave me a chance to learn more about the U.S. Army, hanging out with them uh-huh. in an, that kind of environment. We've got lifelong friends still from that assignment. It's a really neat part of the country, very historic, right there on the Missouri River. Um, and so we did that for a year, and 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 then went to Europe after that. Europe, right. Damn, that song, I've Been Everywhere, man. We've been a lot of places. That's you right yeah. there. Well, we've been to a few. So how long have, have you been with Darla for? Just curious, just because <laughs> she's been with you. She's been with you through so, all of this. So uh, February will be 32 years. Wow. Well, no, no, congrats. 33 years. 33. <laughs> this is where I get in trouble. <laughs> the important dates. Nineteen eight. We got, but but so here's. I mean, here's a, in the middle of all this back in the day. So, I mean, you know, we got engaged in three days, right? No way. Tell me about this. All right. So all the way back uh-huh. to Panama City, and okay. we're there's a there was a, a wedding that was going to occur. Between, as it turns out, mutual friends. I was friends uh-huh. with the groom. She was friends with the the bride to be who was from Weatherford, Texas, and 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 um, so she's coming out to visit her buddy. And, um, and she came out, and I missed when she was out there. And some of my friends said, you, you missed Darla. That was a serious error on your part. Like, okay. So I'm, you know, I'm feeling, you know, like Darla missed an opportunity to meet me. Right? Uh-huh. So she was dating some high-powered lawyer in Dallas at the time. So I'm, I'm eventually going to take her away from all that. <laughs> but uh, she, so I call her up. Hey, how you doing? This is me. Sorry I missed you when you came out to visit. Um, but I hear you're coming out again. It'd really be great to me. And there's like a pause. She goes, so who is this again? Uh-huh. All deflated. <laughs> Anywho, so she ends up coming out 4th of July weekend, 1986, to Panama City. And she comes around the corner. And in my mind, it was like that. So that's the girl I'm going to marry. Wow. Not expected. Wasn't sitting there looking around. And uh, she was in a strong relationship. I had been in a strong relationship. And we... End up kind of hitting it off and took a walk down a beach and at the end of, I just we were just kind of talking and I said look I, you know I've, I've been in a long distance relationship I've seen this movie I think um, you know we could date for a few months I'm getting an assignment I'm going someplace 
I just think uh, you're the person I want to marry. And so she thought about that for 15 more minutes. And then she goes, you know, I'm actually pretty comfortable with this conversation. Wow. Yeah. So we walked back, kept it a secret for about a week because it was just too stupid to share with anybody. And finally, I said, I, I still feel good about it. She still feel good about it. So we started sharing and called my parents and they, they, they thought that was kind of nutty. Uh-huh. So here's where it gets interesting. Tell if me. It's not, so she goes back home. And, uh, real quick, yeah. Darla's his wife, everybody. Just so I, there are some people who are listening. I have friends back home who are listening, and and they don't know backstories to all yeah. this. So cool, one of the coolest couples, if not the coolest couple at the gym. Well, so go ahead, she's, tell. She's pretty. She, well, she is amazing. So um, this has now been about three weeks, and I, I obviously don't know. Her, I don't know much about her family. I've met them because obviously this and it's. You know, so I, well, I got to fly out to Fort Worth. So we fly a, a formation of airplanes out to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth and land and and uh, over a weekend and to meet her folks and her family because Darla is one of four sisters and she was the only one that wasn't married and uh, all the other girls have you know are now married to other other partners and Darla's still with the original issue, um, but so um, I. There's Darl's one of a lot of a lot of a lot of family members and friends came to this barbecue at her house, and I'm drinking nothing but iced tea because I want to be totally on my game. <laughs> my friends kind of sit in the back drinking beer, watching this show because uh-huh. it was entertaining. And I'm you know meeting sisters and, and you know husbands of sisters and, and aunts and uncles and all that. And her parents actually they were on a, a trip to New Orleans if I remember right, and they brought, they cut their short their trip short to come meet this dude. Uh huh. So it's pretty. So the party's already kind of going, and then her parents walk in, and and Shirley and Leo are just absolutely wonderful. As I came to discover, wonderful people. So it's going, and it's all very cordial and superficial. And then I'm, but I'm looking, Darlis, I've got to talk to your dad. I mean, honestly, I've got to have a you know serious conversation. So the the party dissipated, everybody left, and they had kind of had a sunroom in the back, and the Rangers were on, and Shirley asked if I wanted a cold beer, and of course I did. So I had a long neck, I think Budweiser, and. Leo Frank sitting there, and I'm kind of <clears throat> working my way towards it. And finally, I go, "Well, Mr. Reiney," <laughs> you know, in my highest soprano voice, because it didn't quite come off the way I hoped it would. But that's the way it, it went. I go, you know, I, I obviously this has moved a little fast, and you know, I very much want you to know I love your daughter, um, but none of this happens without your blessing. Yeah. You know, no, I didn't know Leo at all then. Obviously, I didn't know his mannerisms or how he talked or anything necessarily. And, he kind of clears his throat a little bit and goes, well, Tim, let me tell you what. Well, in my family, the phrase, let me tell you what, precedes bad information is about to follow. Okay. So I go through this temporal distortion and time slows down because I think that I'm going, this guy's going to give me the boot. Uh-huh. He is gonna, he's going to put the kibosh on this. And, I'm, and so I'm hearing like crickets crawl. I mean, that, I mean I, everything is just stopped. I'm not looking in color. It's black and white. I got no peripheral vision. I'm just focused on this guy. And I'm I'm just going. I mean, it's. I mean, the blood is out of my face. I'm sure everything I just mentioned took three seconds, but in my mind, it was like thirty minutes. Well, Tim, let me tell you what. Because I met Darla's mother. We've been married now, I think, thirty-five years. Um, we got married on our third date, and if it worked for us, you know, I mean, after oh, after knowing man. each other for three dates, if it worked for us, who am I to say it wouldn't work for you? Suddenly, whoop! I see back in color. The peripheral vision returns. You know, uh-huh. blood returns back to my skull. And, and, you know, we, so that was August, July, we got engaged, talked to her parents, 
at the end of July, and we got married in February of 87. Wow. So to answer your question, it's 33 years in February. I can do wow. the math. That is amazing. Yeah. What a cool story. Yeah. What? Not recommended. <laughs> <laughs> Especially nowadays. I feel like uh, it's just... It's, but you know, if you know, you know. I mean, that's, it's yeah. one of those... I mean, I'm 20... We're, we're mid-20s at the time. I mean, it wasn't like... It, we, I mean, obviously, I thought I knew, and I convinced Darla of it. And it worked. I mean, shit, y'all are still together. Hanging in there. So, to get back to the yeah. topic of the Air Force, um, after you all moved to Nevada and did your training in Nevada, then you went to, you For, said... Uh, Kansas, so in Fort Leavenworth. Okay, Kansas. yeah, and then Kansas. And, and then, then I, got a, I got a, a... A lot of times, then, as a pilot, you do something out of the cockpit. So, a, okay. a staff job. Okay. So I went to headquarters, uh, United States Air Forces in Europe, USAFE is the, you know, how we pronounce the acronym, and that's based at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany near a town called Kaiserslautern. Uh-huh. So I was on that staff for two years, and we lived on base at Ramstein. How did you like Europe? Well, you know, um, if you talk to the kids in Darla, because I mean, we ended up being in six years in Europe, they'll say, we were in Europe for six years, Dad was in Europe for three very busy um okay. i mean great experience for the every the family you know yeah. um jonathan played base little league baseball he played little league baseball in poland for god's sakes that was pretty wow cool. um darl was very much the initiator to went either with me or without me to get us out and about and mm-hmm. so um we, we we visited berlin the wall had recently come it had not been down for that that, that long uh-huh. i mean 89 right because when the wall came down and we're now uh, at 97, so it's still. This is kind of still a new thing. Yeah. But going to Berlin, uh, I mean, I mean, we're so one one experience. So we're uh, because Darla is, is really good at retail, you know, and and got involved in a lot of the different uh, retail events. They call them bazaars over there mm-hmm. around the holidays. So we had friends. We she we had friends from Italy and Lithuania and Russia and Poland and uh, that were different vendors of different things. And so we, we participated in a Thanksgiving one year while we were still at Ramstein with a couple from Berlin. And this guy had been, had been in, he'd grown up on the East Berlin side. So there's, that's, you know, that's, that's 40 years of bad renters over there. Um, a couple from Lithuania and then just a German couple. And we had Thanksgiving and they just couldn't believe. And we, it was a no big deal, quote unquote, Thanksgiving, but they couldn't believe the amount of food we were just, you know, bringing out uh-huh. um, to engage with that. But did that for two years at Ramstein, Germany, okay. and then had a, and then got back in, operationally back into the F-16 um, at a place called Spangdalem, Germany, which is up near Trier, which is kind of the corner of where France, Luxembourg, and Germany all interconnect okay. near the Mosul River. It's a beautiful country, um, and that we were end up being there for four years. Four years. So how many years total in Europe? Six. What is something that you can say you took from that as? Something that you today still, something you learned during that trip that you can say you still lived by, or something that you were fascinated by the culture, yeah. and that still sticks out to you. I think um, we could go for in, in a day. We'd get up, let's say it's a Saturday. We could go over to France and go get some great wine and some great baguettes, and then we could go up to Luxembourg and go watch a movie. 
then we come back to Germany and go see our friends that were down the Mosul River. I mean, everything was so much more compressed yeah. than what we're used to here. I mean, you're just, it's, it's just three countries, no big deal. We're just driving around. In one day. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. and not even really trying. I mean, and you're scooting around at, you know, at Audubon speeds at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. The quality of the German road construction is, 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 a, is a world is, is, is fascinating. Really? Absolutely. Because yeah, the, 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 they build their roads to last. Yeah. And then they get incentivized to have them last. Our, our approach is obviously a little bit different. Have you heard that they want to build an Autobahn in California? Uh, okay, good. There, there are plans for it. Okay, good. Um, well, they, they need to okay, build it like a German, it'll be great. Yeah. Wow, so the roadways. That, but I mean, that's that's one aspect. I think that the cultural, the cultural exposure, like for my kids, I mean, even though they might not have appreciated at the ages they were at at the time, but I mean, they had a chance to go to uh, to, to England and to, to France and to, to Spain and to yeah. Italy and to different parts of Germany and to Poland, Austria, the Netherlands. I mean, although there were different, like so many different countries in a compressed area, yeah, were most of the people the same, or was like each country had their own individual culture, even though they were so close together. There were differences. There really? were different, there were differences, but there was a commonality too. I mean, yeah. but it, it was it was different, more so I think than maybe beaming around the U.S. But there's, but there was culture. You know, I think. Well, okay. One thing is just the, the command of languages. I mean, you know, if someone speaks three languages, they're trilingual. If they speak two languages, they're bilingual. If they speak one language, they're American. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, that just in general. Yeah. Uh, that was that was one. So, Do you but, speak any other language? Uh, I, I struggle through Spanish a little bit too. I think I, I Darla is better with Germanic t- style languages. Mm-hmm. I'm better with Romantic. Uh, so when we did a summer, I do a what became one of I do some time in Italy. And we stayed in a garden, and since I exposed a lot of Spanish when I was growing up, I was able to struggle, and at least I could, I could function. I could be a functionally illiterate in Italian and get through going to a store, going to a restaurant. And not get put in jail. I mean, you know, uh-huh. you know the kind of a thing. So, Enough to get by. So yeah, 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 Domani. But uh, it was uh, that part was good. And then um, you know, getting get get. And I think for the kids too. I mean, again, you know, when you're fifth grade and it's like not another cathedral. This is killing me. Now you realize the the experiences that you had. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, pretty pretty amazing. And, and you're there. You just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with that opportunity. Right. So after Germany. So after Germany, and you know, 9-11 happened over in Germany, so that was tough. Okay, so, so that's so, why you were stationed in Germany. Yeah, in fact, my, I was airborne in 9-11, so wow. um, we were coming back from the States. And then when I, we landed at, uh, at Spangdalem, after being in the States training for six weeks, um, we landed in, you know, after the, the towers. And I remember getting met by my wing commander, and I said, you know, what in the world's gone on? Because we didn't have the full story. And he said, we're at war, we just don't know with whom. Wow. So there's a sobering day. And that started just all, you know, that started the next thing. So I'm, our squadron was one of the squadrons in March of uh, 2001 that escorted, along with some others, escorted the C-17s in to do the humanitarian aid to the, what was the Northern Alliance. And we're flying over Uzbekistan and Azerbaijani and things like that. Again, why'd Americans go to a war to learn geography? I mean, it was, yeah. So that, would, that added a whole other chapter of just exposure and experiences. Wow. And you did do missions in Iraq? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so back again, so now I'm a squadron commander, so I'm in charge of 380 people. In, in, so you had ranked up significantly. So at Spangdom, I'm, I'm now a lieutenant colonel. Okay. And uh, so I'm in charge of 350 pilots and maintainers, so officers enlisted. 
and uh, we had 20 F-16s. And our mission of that version of the F-16 was called SEED, which is S-E-A-D, which is Suppression of Enemy Air Defenses, so wild weasels. So we would go after the air defenses of bad guys, which is like an advanced cape tag. You know, mm. you go after me, I go after you, and you see who can. It's a great mission. It's uh, highly technical. Uh, you got to be very proficient, but we had a very good aircraft to do it with some of the instrumentation. But you're always you're all, you're deployed a lot because you you're very much in demand. So whether you're flying in Northern Watch, which was out of Turkey over Iraq, or Southern Watch, which was out of Saudi Arabia over Iraq. Or then when the Afghanistan gig kicked off, now you're, of course there's Afghanistan, so there's places to be all the time. You know? yeah. And so there's there's again that's where, you know, the comment hey we were in six we were six years in Europe. Dad was home for three of those. That is, three hundred and eighty pilots. No, three hundred and eighty personnel. So that was okay. pilots and and maintainers. Ah, gotcha. And everything else that goes with it. Yeah. Which was a great experience. You learn you learn a lot and you learn. How to deal with people? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, this, you know, when we get the journey, it's what do you? It's it, it, the answer you're going to get from everybody is it's the people. It's it's who you got exposed to. The stuff is there, but it's really the people and the culture that is yes. is is what stays with you. What did you think about being in Iraq? Just like, um, obviously, you've lived in the United States, so knowing how fortunate yeah. we are to be here. Oh, it's rough. Yeah. It's rough. Well, then I'll end up getting an assignment, you know, later where I'll be a commander at a base in Iraq. But we'll get to that later. But um, it's tough, and, and we'll talk about that. You know, because then I was on the ground. I mean, okay. it, when I was an Air Force guy at, up to this point, I'd be on a base, very sequestered. I'm, I'm doing my thing, flying missions. So I'm not, I'm not in my roles up to this point. I'm not intermingling. I don't ah, to, with I other other necessarily, you know, community leaders or people that just happen to be out and about it just uh -huh. doesn't work like that so what gets us to that point what what happens in between so no so later so after germany so okay. we, now we end up i went to another professional school it's called air university and that was in montgomery alabama and now jonathan is a sophomore excuse me jonathan's a freshman in high school and natalie's a seventh grader and uh so we got to experience montgomery alabama which is a little bit different yeah for us. that was it was it was a uh, but it, that was definitely a year where I took advantage of uh, getting refreshed. And Natalie was in seventh grade, and I remember we'd been there for a couple of weeks. And you know, after six years of being gone a lot and responsible for a lot of people and, and a lot of variables and stuff, I'm just a student, right? So I got to be at class at eight thirty. Yeah, you kidding me? Oh, really? And we're done by twelve thirty? Oh, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> so it's like it's, we've been doing this for a couple of days, and Natalie's one of my daughter, and Jonathan's my son, and so Natalie's in seventh grade comes. I'm coming home and I'm wearing, I'm not wearing a flight suit, I'm wearing, you know, our class B's, which are polyester blue pants and a white cotton, or blue cotton shirt. She goes, Dad, I noticed you're wearing a different uniform. I noticed you're around a lot more now. Are we in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> so no, honey, we're just, I'm just here and I'm going to take advantage of yeah. this whole year of getting connected and, you know, and all that. So that was a great year to get reconnected. Um, it's interesting in Montgomery because if you're not from there and they know you're a military person coming and going, they, the average bear really doesn't want to get to know you. That was kind of interesting. Mm. I mean, that was interesting. Um, that was our experience. You know, other places, that was our personal experience. The people were on the surface very, very nice, but they, they just, unlike in the military, where if you and I get together and we know we're assigned for a year, it's a family, you know, yeah. we immediately want to get connected there because they're not in the military it was kind of a little more standoffish much more than Darl and I were used to after being six years in Europe 
in a military environment, you know, all sorts of different cultures and demographics and stuff. Um, it was just a little different. So were the people in Europe um, very welcoming to the Americans that were there in the it military? It depended who you were, I mean, okay. and how you approached it. I mean, they, they'd seen the, the act for a long time. And yeah. I think if you um, were humble and, uh, you know, just... Um, Approachable, it was much easier than, mm-hmm. than if you know it's all about me and here I come and, and loud and obnoxious. That's you know that gets tiresome. You know when you've yeah. seen this movie a few times. So yeah. I, I'll tell you this: in the entire time we traveled all over Europe, I never and also down to Morocco. Actually, Morocco was a little, Tangier's a little weird, but um, but I never felt nervous or threatened from a security standpoint. I never, mm-hmm. which goes to my. I never went looking for trouble, but trouble never came looking for me, and I can't say that in the U.S. I mean, different yeah. places. Yeah, interesting. So that was one of my pitches when I was in Germany, and I would take my squadron to say Las Vegas. Here we go. Yeah. And I got an 18-year-old. I'm going to give him a credit card who's maybe never been out and about, and I'd say, okay, nobody goes anywhere by themselves, just because just you just weird things can happen. You know, you How fall crazy. in love with somebody you didn't think you're going to fall in love with. Yeah, it's like no, no, no. Uh-huh. You know, you were always, you always, you always. So when you when you did have time off, we would normally stay downtown at a hotel when we were out in Las Vegas. Yeah, but we went to so there we go. So now we're in Montgomery in um, uh, two thousand and three to two thousand and four, and then I got an assignment to Luke Air Force Base, which is in Arizona in Phoenix, and that okay. was to be um, three. It turned out to be three years, and now that's where. That's the largest Air Force air fighter base in the world in terms of numbers of fighters. At the time, we had 207 F-16s on the ramp there, uh-huh. and I ended up becoming, becoming in charge of all that. So I became the operations group commander at Luke wow. Air Force Base. 200. Mm-hmm, over 200 jets. Wow. And and it was the largest fighter operation in the world. So now Jonathan is a sophomore, junior. We didn't say the three years, so Jonathan went through sophomore, junior, senior year, and Natalie did um, eighth grade, ninth grade, and tenth grade. Uh, in Arizona, in Arizona, and that was that was a good assignment. That was a because we weren't in deployed for me. I mean, it was a great great mission. Um, you flew a lot. Um, you weren't on the cusp always being deployed again too. So that kind of took that out of the equation, and that, yeah. that was good for the family. Did you get deployed after this? Yeah. To so after Luke Air Force Base, that's when I came to San Antonio. So now okay. we came to San Antonio in two thousand seven. And I was on the Air Education Training Command staff here, and that's how I got exposed to you know being here. And um, not too far into it, I got a call to go be the commander at Kirkuk Air, Bo- Air Base, Kirkuk in Iraq. So that job entailed I was in charge of 10,000 people um, at an air base in Iraq, and it was really th- I had three hats. I had I was responsible for the safety and security of 10,000 people every single day. I was also responsible for all the airspace in northern Iraq. And I also was uh, had judicial, um, you know, primary responsibility for any Air Force personnel that were in northern Iraq, and I was there for seven months. Wow, and that was a great assignment. That was the best assignment I had in the Air Force. It was, really? it was well in terms of the ability to make a difference. Yeah, and uh, the amount of autonomy I had was unnerving. Um, we were under attack. We had we had a level two trauma location, so we were fixing soldiers up. I had. Every agency of the U.S. Air of the U.S. government you'd expect. Your Treasury was there. I had Delta Force, SEALs, DIA, CIA, OSI, um, folks doing their particular missions, engagement. You know, in terms of community, nation building. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Department of Treasury and Commerce were, and State Department were doing tremendous work working with different Iraqis. And it was challenging because um, we were by, right by uh, large uh, oil um, reserves, which are very coveted by everybody. And you're at this schism of um, cultures of Sunni, Shia, um, and Kurdish uh, cultures, and still had remnants of the Turkish Empire that had been there too back in the day. So if you're familiar with the Balkans, which are a pretty challenging political area, okay. this part of the world makes the Balkans look easy. Wow. So every single day was a new day. That is fascinating. Yeah, so that was a big deal. But And, and, and uh, um, to have that experience, um, though, was really fulfilling. But when I got off the airplane and I came back in 2008, May of 08, um, both Darrell and I came to a pretty quick decision. That was it. I mean, we were done. There's nothing left in the Air Force that I wanted to do after that that was going to match what it, it was just time. It, 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 it sometimes is an art to get off the stage with your health, your self-respect, self, your health, your self-respect um, and your family mm-hmm. and do it with a smile on your face. And I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. And we were, we made the decision to you know stay here in the Hill Country and throw out the anchor here and end up building a house and, and uh, meet some really cool people at Kamal Active. I would definitely love to know more about the stories about Iraq and all. We can say that for another podcast. Yeah. But now that we're caught up, you're here in San Antonio. Yeah. Um, was this your first time being in Texas? Um, other than being in Lubbock, Texas. Oh, yeah, uh, For Lubbock. pilot training back in 84. Uh-huh. Yeah, a sign. I mean, I, I was, I was in visit, I visited San Antonio and Fort Worth. Godaro's from Fort Worth. Okay. So we were back and forth to Fort Worth quite a bit. And then because of the major military presence in San Antonio mm-hmm. during my career, there were many times where I came to visit. And, you know, one of the, or, you know, I think San Antonio's got the nicest people I've ever encountered in the world. I mean, you can get in a conversation wow. at the HEB or at the gas station, yeah. and you just do. Yep. Everybody looks you in the eye, and, and you go to other places in the country, and it's, you make, we make people nervous because we just say hello, and everybody gets real nervous when we do that. That's, that's something that my dad says a lot because he was born in Texas, yeah. um, got stationed in California. Then came back, and he's always saying, you know, he goes back to California for work. Yeah, everybody's spring loaded to flip you off. Yeah, but here, tense. you yeah. just talk to everybody. Right. Everybody intermingles. Everybody feels comfortable. Right. Um, but when it comes to Texas, so you came here, joined Comal Active. You built a house. You built yeah. your family. You anchored down. You did the Baton Death March. Yeah, twice through Comal Active. Right. Both times. After you joined, or did you do one before you had been? No, I did. Uh, uh, what, what year were we in? I'm losing my mind. So 2019. Okay. I did that, and I did 2018. So 2018 with the group, 2019 by myself. So I would love to know what your experience is worth doing that, and first explain what it is, um, and then would love to know your experience, and also where does that come from? That drive to want to do such a thing, such as the Death March. Um. So the Bataan Memorial Marathon is based upon the Bataan Death March, which happened at the very beginning of World War II. Okay. And it was a horrendous experience for Americans and British and Filipino um, soldiers and nurses that were there. And it was terrible. And turns out that the state of New Mexico, resident state of New Mexico, had a very disproportionate um, amount of people that were killed there. They just happened to be stationed at that, that area, Bataan okay. and Corregidor. Area in the Philippines, the beginning of at the beginnings of of our entry into World War II. So years later, folks in New Mexico said we would like to memorialize this and honor those that um, went through that experience and the survivors with a marathon 
length ruck, you know, carry some weight and that kind of stuff through the uh, high deserts of New Mexico. So the post of uh, um, the White Sands Missile Range hosts the event, um, somewhere, and that's between Alamogordo and Las Cruces, if, you're, if someone's familiar with that, mm-hmm. middle of nowhere. Um, but that post hosts that, and um, you have a chance in, to, to participate in various categories to, on that event. And it's incredibly patriotic, it's incredibly relevant experience. Um, and for me, that really appealed to be a part of it, because I had never done a marathon before of anything, I mean, hadn't done that. So the training for it, we did a Kamala Active, mm-hmm. was really great. I mean, just the, um, the camaraderie we had in the team building for that, the first year I did it, um, and then experience in that whole terrain. And there's a lot of World War II experience in my family. My dad was quite a student of the Pacific Theater World War II, so it was a connection point for my dad, who had passed away at age 58, believe it or not. And uh, so that was, that was an important piece. And then the next year, I wanted to go back because there were some things I learned. I wanted, I wanted to do one more time. And the rest of Kamal Active was going to do a different event, but I, I, just, I, was, I just was going to stick with it. So did it solo. I mean, now you're with 5,000 other people, but I didn't have any my, my, you yeah. know, my, my peeps that were part of the event. And uh, that, was, that was pretty cool to do. I mean, it was kind of purifying to do it that way, too. And my training was a little more autonomous, too. Uh-huh. But you, I learned from the first experience. So I've done two marathon-length events. And after last year, I vowed I, I was good with that. And now I'm the stupid primal <laughs> man thing. So I, I, I don't think I'm done with marathon. I know I'm not done with marathon-length events. So that was 26.2? 26.2 miles. And yes. how, many, uh, how many pounds did you carry on your back? I went light. I, the 35-pound pack was, was a struggle for me, so I carried about 15, just what I needed to go with. Yeah. You know, so I went, quote-unquote, light. How long did that take? Um, you, are you going through sand? There's different terrain. There, you, you're on pavement, which is actually brutal uh-huh. um, on, on that for the distances you've got. And there's, there's a sandy area, too, that's kind of sandy. It's the pit of despair. I, I had names for all different parts just to uh-huh. keep myself entertained. Um, there's dirt roads. Last year it snowed the night before, so actually with the higher elevations, we were walking through areas that were kind of snowy, which mm-hmm. was that was surprised everybody. You know, that was unexpected. Um, but you know, I had a chance. You know, so at the beginning of the event, I had a chance to shake the hand of a 95 year old gentleman who was a 95 yeah. and still there, um, a Bataan Death March survivor. Obviously, he rode it out in the Japanese POW camp World War Two, which was pretty rough and then went through the rest of life's experience was still there to shake you know my hand as I started you know the 26.2 miles of which you know I wouldn't be in tortured and I had food I mean I had water I had everything else and I had nice shoes and nice clothes on and and those guys and any of that after they survived the whole siege of you know the what led to the Bataan uh, the actual Bataan event in 1942. So you seem to me to be a high achiever always reaching for that next push where did that come from? Where do you think, have you always had that or was there a point in your life where it really kicked in? You know, I, I, I don't know. There's, I've tried to be, I've tried to work on balance. Okay. I think I'm better with that now. My, my wife may say, mm, it's work in progress. Uh-huh. Um, but um, I, I hate errors of omission. I, I've, I've found this, I found, I've really, when you start getting the age, for me, I started I start to recognize that myself in college, that 
I can work with someone who's making mistakes, but they're trying to go forward. I just hate it when things are undone or somebody has allowed themselves to just get in the, in the malaise of beige or mediocrity. It just it drives me crazy. Yeah. And what I've been fortunate enough to get exposed to with a, an education that was phenomenal, and I, and I respect that a lot more now than I, do at the, than I did at the time, having a chance to fly airplanes, having a chance to fly f the best aircraft in the world with the best people in the world, both fixing them and flying them, um, I recognize I was very fortunate to do that. And it gives you a, a not a rush, but you're, you're relevant, right? Yeah. And when you retire, and this is a challenge a lot of times for career military folks, or any, an athlete too. I mean, it, 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 it's, there's a similar emotion with that. What's the next thing? And to do that though with balance. Mm -hmm. So with balance, um, and this is where CrossFit's come in. You know, I mean, Darla and I, when we first, when we, when we, because it was we, retired, you know, kind of now what's our thing? Because the re you got more time. I mean, the relationship, I mean, there's change. And so what's your thing? I, I speak at retirement seminars too, and I, I talk on this topic a little bit, and I said, find your thing. It's kind of like Curly and City Slickers. What it is, I don't know. You'll have to figure it out, but it's just one thing. Yep. We tried golf. That wasn't good for our relationship. <laughs> so we tried hot yoga. Spandex isn't for everybody. Uh -huh. And uh, and then we, 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 we kind of just migrated. Well, she joined you know the bo the little box back in the day. Before in it 2010. Yeah. You know, Kamal CrossFit. You know, up there. You know, and then um, so through that, you know, I, I've come to the determination that this is my Friday Night Lights. Yeah. That that where's that butterfly? That's why we do you know hero wads. That's why we we maybe do a couple of competitions. You know where people are cheering. There's a clipboard. You know, you got to really. You know, there's a little bit of performance anxiety. You know, yeah. and, and it feels good to have that because when you start losing that, I think you become a little bit lesser. You know, and and I feel very fortunate that this is a community that we've become. This is part of our social fabric. Our church. Our, our, our friends, our family, but Kamal is, is part of the fabric of our lives. And some people, you know, how do you know somebody does CrossFit because they won't shut up about it, uh -huh. you know, but it, it's um, someone, and, I, and I, I'm conscious that other boxes are different. And I just, I don't know if there's a better box that certainly, you know, works works for us. And somebody will say, well, what, what, what's up with Kamal? I, say, I don't know. It's really a social group of the workout problem. Yeah. You know? but, but I think so that, 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 that flow... Kamal Active has allowed me to, to build upon some of those opportunities that I don't know where else I'd be getting those types of things. To, and by the way, I mean, some people hunt, some people fish, some people have airplanes, some people have boats. This is, this is what we do you know, yeah. in, our, in terms of our discretionary time. How was that transition for you? To go from being identified as a pilot, you were always a pilot, to retiring? That phase of your life was it difficult? Did you go through any hard times? I, I think it was great. I, I was. I, it was I, just the right time. It was for us. It was the right. It was now's the time. It, yeah. it was. I didn't stay one assignment too long. Or it was. We were very fortunate. I mean, again, wasn't wasn't expecting to the Air Force Academy at the beginning. Yeah. Wasn't expecting to be at Randolph Air Force Base at the end. I yep. mean, but as it turns out, when you factor everything in. It couldn't have. It couldn't have been better. It. It I mean. It, it allowed us. My son, while we were in Phoenix, got accepted to Texas A&M. We were on our way to D.C. 
as a result, we came to San Antonio. We got a chance to be part of his college experience in the yeah, core yep. and be Aggie parents. Now we're totally caught up in Aggie football, it's, which is a frenetic existence. Um, and then Natalie got accepted to Texas State, which was the best place for her because she always had a dream of becoming a teacher. And Texas State's educational program is phenomenal uh. and has allowed her to be a seventh grade math teacher and, and kick an ass. You know, it come all at, at Spring Branch Middle School. Go Wranglers. Um, right but so th- all those different kind of plays, you know, I think is, is, is you know, we just, it was just, and that was the time to, to get off the state and, and do it in our manner. I'll tell you the transition, I think, as a senior officer, you know, is to learn how to say the word no, because you're not used to learning to say the word no. And it, once you finally get comfortable with saying, eh, I don't think I'll do that. It's a very liberating ah, experience. But it, for me, it took longer, I think. It took really three years to transition, to have a mindset of being retired from the Air Force. I very much honor, I mean, appreciate what I got exposed to and what I did, and I, and I deal with a lot of folks in the military today. But I've, I've learned to derive my relevancy from places other than what I'm actually doing to get up to do, to go, quote, unquote, go to work. Yeah. And, and, and that transition, that timing is different for everybody. Um, and and when I, I do a little self you know reflection, it took about three years. But CrossFit has helped a lot with that because that's kind of fill that. What kind of gets that spring in your step? You know, be, that competitive juices. Yeah. Because a lot of times in business and stuff, if you if you have that competitive juice all the time, you, you'll drive yourself bonkers because you can't get the same payback from it, especially with your, when you're with a big company. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you spent how many years doing CrossFit? We joined in 2010. Ah, oh, that's when the box is super small. Yeah, we were. It was the little you're box. You're an OG. If you're an OG at the at the box, one of the my my Letterman's jacket says 2010. Damn, I'm supposed to get mine. I'm supposed to get mine. I get mine pretty soon. That's a pretty cool gift. Yeah. Um, there was something else I was going to ask. Oh, okay. So now you're in Texas. Yeah. Um, you're living here north of San Antonio, so I'm about I would say 30 minutes from you. But one thing I noticed that I had to ask about was driving in. Yeah. There's a sign that says exotic animal right. exotic animal ranch beware. Right. What's going on here? So we live in Wagner Ranch, which we talked about where it is. It's kind of sorted by Smithson Valley and Startsville for those that are paying attention on the way to Gennaro's, which is an outstanding Italian restaurant. Um, so 850 acres and part of the neighborhood inside a high fence. We've um, the Wagner family it introduced a number of years ago exotic animals. What does that mean? Animals like their black antelope or axis deer, or we have cyca deer, um, we have fallow deer, and we have audad sheep, and then we also have African oryx. Just roaming the roaming around. <laughs> we don't hunt. We don't hunt in here. It's really cool. It requires active management. There's a lot of passion about how we handle our animals, and sometimes we get pretty lively neighborhood conversations along that way. But that's all good because we we all care yeah. about how the animals are managed. But yeah, that's. That's kind of the neat attribute of Wagner Ranch is, is that is, is that right there. So you can just wake up and on your driveway there could be some orcs. Yeah, so I'll, out. I'll, yeah, or as Darl says, orcs, which I said we're not in we're not in, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's Oryx, not orcs, but Oryx. Um, but the uh, we'll have they got deer feeders and stuff and salt blocks to you know, the animals come in and make so our our so house is part of the cool. you know, happy hour. Have you heard that there are more lions? And tigers in captivity in Texas than there are in the wild of the world. Uh, that's a that's a de- a factoid I was unaware of, Julian. I've heard that, and that's <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. You know, like I have neighbors who have zebras um, right across from Sisson Valley. There's a property that has right. tons of zebras. They have giraffes, mm-hmm. 
And like coming from California, you know, I, I have the fact that three houses down, some guy has zebras and orcs. I'm just like, yeah. this is insane. Yeah. But it's very interesting. Yeah, man. It's it's we are very fortunate how we found. I mean, this property we just we we first got to Randolph. We came and in one day we bought ten acres. So to the not expect on a handshake, by the way, too. That's just kind of doing business in South Texas. Mm. So two of the biggest decisions I've made was uh, buying ten acres of land on a handshake one day and and then proposing to my wife of coming up on 33 years right on yeah. one last question yeah. i don't want to take up you know i don't want to go too late um i love the conversation but one yeah. last question for you so you've lived a ton of places would you say san antonio is one of the better places you've lived experience wise um yes i it's where we build our home i mean that's yeah. where we've 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 thrown out the anchor um it, it, it combines. I mean, yeah, it, it's got it's it's such a, a fabric of culture. I mean, it's Spanish culture, military culture, German culture. Yeah, you know, I mean, what those folks did coming up to Guadalupe in eighteen forties. Um, it's a really good blend. It's very vibrant. I mean, you know, I, I'm involved in a lot of leadership programs in the greater San Antonio area, and you know, the feeling is it's you know this is kind of the twenty first century you know American city in a lot of ways, and. Uh, I think that's really cool. It's it's got an energy and a and a, um, a a positivity that I think is uh, is rare to find anywhere. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, and you see it when you go other places, and you go, huh? I mean, we go to St. Peter and Paul's Catholic Church in New Braunfels, and one of my comments is, it's hard to find a parking place. You know, mm. so how are we doing? That's with, I mean, five, yeah. that's with five masses, and uh, I mean, that's just kind of that's just one aspect of many. It's you know, it's uh, big communities. Big communities, I think, uh, a good social awareness, yeah. uh, cultural awareness, and uh, we enjoy we 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 enjoyed a lot of our assignments all over. It's funny the assignments we thought we a lot of times we thought we might not enjoy we enjoyed the most, and then vice versa, mm. which goes to kind of the one door opens another you know one door closes another door opens up, and yeah. I, I would say almost with two rare exceptions, meeting Darla Jean and. Finding where we are now, I think I've never ever quote unquote got my first choice of whatever I thought that first choice would be. But what became the apparent choice is, was turned out to be far better than what I thought was going to uh -huh. be the best thing. It's kind of like a country song. Hell of a beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, man, thanks. Hey, I'm glad we had this conversation. Absolutely, Julian. And I'm excited to do another. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate Talk to it. Talk to you, brother. You too.